0: News, weather, traffic, money,
1: politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Boats, you see them all the time out there on the water, and I know if you're like me, you wonder, are all of these occupied? Well, the answer to that is no. They are not all occupied. There are thousands of abandoned vessels all up and down the BC coast. They're pretty ugly and also they end up as an environmental hazard in some cases too. However, we might be able to reduce the numbers of them soon. The federal government has stepped up to help fund a big cleanup program. Kylie Stanton has more.
3: They wash up rusted out, sometimes barely afloat. Derelict vessels have become fixtures in virtually every coastal community across the province. We've had a lot of boats come ashore, you know, at gyro. We've done some stories
2: on that. see a styrofoam. And Oak Bay has too.
1: It's an old dinghy rowboat.
2: And
3: what's unfortunate is that these boat owners walk away or we can't find them, and then society as a whole has to clean up their mess. But now the federal government is stepping in to help through its Abandoned Boats program announcing nearly $1.7 million in funding for the assessment and removal of derelict vessels in Canadian waters.
4: I mean, it's really a cause for celebration, and it makes a huge difference for the coastal communities here um, in, in British Columbia.
3: The money will fund 44 assessments of boat removal projects in B.C., Newfoundland, and Labrador, and the removal of 51 abandoned boats in B.C. and Nova Scotia. 100% 100% of the costs, up to $50,000 per project, will be covered. It was long awaited. Salish Sea Industrial Services Limited is one of the recipients. It has until March 31st to remove 24 vessels in the Greater Victoria area.
5: We received about $550,000. We like to think that with this funding we are making a difference, um, but this is, this is an ongoing project.
3: It's estimated there are currently more than 4,000 derelict vessels in B.C.'s coastal waters, and that number includes Increases by the day while the funding is appreciated it will only address the removal of a fraction of what's out there
1: it'll make a scratch not a dent actually uh, there's a lot more out there we've identified through databases and things we got a ways to go yet
3: the only way to really make any headway is to ensure the funding continues well into the future it's already proving to be a worthy investment every boat removed leaves economic stimulus in its wake
4: to have these programs roll out and to be able to create these meaningful employment opportunities in our coastal communities. Has really been a, uh, you know, had a huge impact.
3: Kylie Stantic, Global News. All right, let's talk
2: about real estate this morning. You might be ready to buy. You might think, oh, okay, this is it. I want a bigger space since I'm working from home and I'm doing all these things. But you know what? Good luck finding anything available in the real estate market right now, not just here, but right across the country. Record low supply has resulted in prices going up. We're talking back to the tw- days of 2015 where multiple offers, big time competition, but Really, how long can this continue? Let's get some analysis on this now. Dane Idle is back with us, the founder and lead analyst at Idle Insights. Good morning, Dane.
4: Good morning, Simi Howard. Happy to be back with you.
2: Well, nice to have you here. Are are you surprised by any of what you're kind of hearing and seeing out there in the real estate market right now?
4: You know what? It's really not too surprising. Since we've entered into this new COVID uh, era, um, that demand for larger square footage has really been prevalent. And that continued exodus from the downtown core is right across the nation, uh, still does continue. So it, it really is a trend that is um, sustaining itself. Now, over the near term and longer term, of course, things will relax. We're starting to enter into some warmer weather. We have vaccines all, along the way. So it's seemingly like we might be coming to a head here. What's interesting, speaking about the greater Vancouver market, is, as you mentioned, prices are back up to their their peak value. So we are back up to um, 1814000 as of the average sale price after January. So that's just below 1% um, of our actual market peak, which did occur back in May of 2017 at 1830000 So we are very close to breaking into a, a brand new threshold of detached prices here in Vancouver.
2: That's crazy, right? Like, <laughs> it just seems nuts. So why do you think people are not putting houses on the market? Like, why aren't people listing? Why isn't there more supply?
4: You know what's interesting? It was a trend, of course, that started last year with just legitimate health concerns, and it really has um, migrated to extending itself. Something that we really did not notice last year was any really movement in the downsizing market, so we didn't have any people exiting the detached property and entering into the condo market. That could be something that's coming up this year, uh, especially with the discrepancy between the two asset classes, Areas in downtown, for example, West Vancouver are, are down uh, 32%, or sorry, West End of downtown is down 32%, and the downtown core is down 25%, while a majority of the detached prices are escalating higher. Uh, for example, Port Coquitlam is actually up from January 2020, was 875000 and that's average sale price is now over $1.2 million, so we've increased 38% in the last 12 months alone oh. in Port Coquitlam. So is it sustainable <laughs> unlikely as as long as we do see a return of that uh, inventory we're looking for a key level of 5700 active listings throughout the summer season and that should curtail this um, over frenzied market and would likely see us remain in this market cycle for a prolonged period of time. It, uh, what, sorry, go ahead.
2: I was going to say what you're, what you're saying there sounds really interesting. So it's almost like this is a societal issue where perhaps it's the pandemic or whatever the case may be that people are deciding that I'm not going to sell my house. I'm not going to downsize into something smaller. I'm going to stay in this house. And if that's the case, then that kind of disrupts the whole flow, right, of the market.
4: Absolutely, it really does. And what's interesting to notice, the supply-demand metrics differential between now and 2016. uh, It's kind of technical, but there was a full four-point-degree spread um, between the supply and demand back in March of 2016. That's right around when we actually entered into this market cycle. The current differential between the supply and the demand is actually only at 1.86. So the the metrics are actually a lot closer than one might be led to believe. And if we do see that's a return of the inventory, it's unlikely that the demand could keep at a torrid pace. The demand or the sales do seem strong right now. But again, that's only because we're comparing it to the amount of inventory. And when that is so abysmal, it does make the market look a lot stronger than it truly is.
2: Right, so then, what would it take though to get that to shift? So, are there people you have to? Yeah, right. You have to convince people to put their house on the market, but then those people need some place to go. So, is are developers not building what people want in order to downsize?
4: Well, the, the latest data did come out that the builders are starting to actually ramp up again. But interestingly enough, that would be more in the detached market. There is still a plethora of inventory available for the condo market. Um, it's just the desirability of having that square footage. And again, the downsizing group, um, doesn't necessarily want to move into a building with a lot of people, but what's interesting about what would be their, um, their incentive to come back to the market is high prices. During 2019 and even the beginning portions of 2020, values were down significantly. They were 14% lower than where they are now. Now that we're back up to peak market values and multiple offers prevalent again, you could see that return to the market from sellers that had maybe put the um, notion of selling their property on the back burner in the last year. They could return in 2021, which would actually have a deleterious effect to the market overall.
2: So is that really how long we're going to have to wait with a market like this? Like, if you're somebody who's looking to get into the market, and I know a couple people right now who right. are exhausted by the process, Absolutely. this right. losing out every single time. They even, even if you look at a listing that you like, it's gone before you can even make a phone call about it. What, what are those people supposed to do?
4: <laughs> In all honesty, one of the interesting things about that is if you don't want to get caught up into this frenzied mentality, even if prices do escalate beyond this market cycle born out of a, a lack of supply, you will eventually see another market cycle occur. And to be purchasing into a property, you're, you're still buying the underlying asset. So if the property value has increased 100,000, 200,000 over the last few months, you might want to put the hold on the horses because at the end of the day, you still are buying that property for uh, uh, an extreme or for an extreme price at current values. So when there's more inventory, you just have more selection and, and the competition factor might switch back to the sellers given more time and we start to evolve out of the COVID era and we see more of a normalized market, which could actually happen in the next six months. Um, This initial six months of 2021 should really give us a a better gauge for the next few year trend.
2: The market right now is almost behaving irrationally. When you hear the stories, I don't know if you know anybody who's looking for a house right now, but it's kind of crazy out there. Actually not even kind of, it is crazy out there. People buying things, Back in 2015, one of the signs that the market was nuts was that people were buying things sight unseen, right? Not even going to see the house, not even getting an inspection. They were buying it subject to no inspection. That's happening again out there because there is so little supply and people are so afraid of losing out on this house that they had a chance to look at. So they are just buying it up, snapping it up the moment that they actually see uh, the, you know, the listing come up for sale. I I do have some friends who are looking for a house and I've told them like, you know what, maybe you should just wait, wait a little while longer, see what happens because the market is not behaving rationally out there. Now I'm sure you have a story about this, right? You've seen what's going on in your neighborhood. Are you one of these people who is shopping for a house right now? Or maybe you've decided I'm just not doing anything. So our little bit of winter that we had here in Metro Vancouver was what, about a week or so? And it's pretty much over now. But in Texas, that is not the case. They didn't have a touch of winter. They were walloped by it. And more snow is falling in that state this morning. And they continue to register more concerns, safety problems and deaths related to that cold blast that continues with millions of people without power. So let's get an update on what's going on. Joining us is CBS News correspondent Alan Skaya. Good morning, Alan.
6: Good morning, Simi.
2: What is the situation in Texas this morning? What parts of Texas are the hardest hit?
6: Well, it's the the thing that makes this an unprecedented storm is it's hit almost all of Texas. Uh, For the past few days, we had winter storm warnings covering every county in the state. And that's one of the reasons that we started seeing these reeling blackouts, is that with temperatures at their coldest in decades here, uh, here in the DFW area, we, we got the two degrees below zero, which uh, which we haven't had in, in years. That was a record low year. And uh, we, we've seen that cold weather everywhere. And that's got a lot more stress as people have turned up the heat across the state. And so that's what led to the normal blackouts here.
2: And I know a lot of people are wondering, uh, how did that happen? Like, what is the deal with Texas's infrastructure that they would have such power grid problems?
6: Even the governor is asking why Texas is having these power grid problems. Our grid is separate from the rest of the United States. Uh, the U.S. has an eastern and a western grid. Texas, because of its size, would cover both of those areas. And so Texas has its own grid. They could import power from other parts of the country, uh, but, uh, but they didn't do it in time or earlier this week. And that's what led to these rolling blackouts. And also because of the cold, that meant coal power plants, uh, oil power plants, uh, natural gas plants offline, and also the few wind turbines that we have—they started icing up too, and so we had less generation than normal, combined with with greater demand.
2: Okay, so is that getting fixed? Like, how long are people going to be without power at this point?
6: We are starting to warm up. You know, I mean, we may not even hit freezing until later this week, still, uh, but at least this morning we stayed above zero, and so. You know, it's it's going to start curtailing back. But right now, they are still dealing with rolling outages. And also, they're dealing with unplanned outages because the stand ice also hit transformers, And so that knocks some people offline for hours and hours at a time.
2: Now, are there going to be, is there anything going to be fixed about this, Alan? You know what I mean? Like, it's it's an emergency situation. People say it's unacceptable. But once it's all over, are people going to forget? Or is this like
6: a once in a lifetime storm? Yeah, Texas lawmakers have already called a, uh, 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 for, 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 for a hearing in the state capitol coming up next week to talk to the Electric Reliability Council of Texas to figure out exactly what went wrong. How do we stop this from happening again? Because the last time, we haven't been this cold uh, uh, statewide in about 10 years. It was 2011 was the last time that ERCOT had to order rolling blackouts. And they said nothing has changed since then. There's nothing done. Nothing's been done that's, uh, that's helped improve the reliability of the electric system.
2: Right. So they're doing it the Texas way, which is to do it, you know, uniquely in their own way. It doesn't seem to
6: be working in this regard. It, it does not. And, yeah, they say that, you know, like we have a balanced system. We have different modes of generation, of power generation. But there was sort of essentially a perfect storm that knocked all of those different options offline.
2: So how are people dealing with this? I know you've had something like two dozen deaths happening. Uh, I, I was reading the story about like Mattress Mac, some companies opening up their doors and letting people come in and warm up. It sounds like a real serious crisis.
6: Yeah, uh, Mattress Mac, he, yeah, he's, he's famous for doing that. He did that uh, a few years ago, we had a hurricane hit Houston until he opened up his stores in Houston to let people stay on mattresses if they had to leave their home during that hurricane. Um, but yeah, people are... Uh, essentially, just having to make plans on the fly. you know people might stay with friends who who do have power if your power is out. Um, they're asking the local governments here are asking people not to set their thermostat above uh, sixty seven degrees Fahrenheit uh, so that that takes some of the pressure off the system. However, the one natural gas provider too, they're urging people not to uh, not to you know turn off your water heater, turn down your thermostat because their demand is very high now too.
2: Well, it sounds like everybody is is in the same boat here with this. Alan, thank you for your time this morning.
6: You bet. Thanks for having me.
2: Good luck. Alan Skye is a CBS News correspondent in Texas, uh, updating us on what has been going on there. So they had a big storm in 2011. They had the same problems and they said never again. And now here they are in 2021, 10 years later, same thing, even worse hitting this time. Will they actually change anything? Uh, Residents down there really are suffering on that. We'll continue
0: to update you on how that goes so
2: the news yesterday out of ottawa was the federal government's newly announced gun buyback program there's a lot of different elements to what they announced yesterday and there are still a lot of questions about what they announced yesterday so we thought let's check in with our global news ottawa bureau chief mercedes stevenson for more on exactly what was announced mercedes thanks for joining us this morning okay let's first of all run through what the actual announcement was yesterday
7: So the actual announcement is a whole broad suite of things, and let's just quickly list them off and and what they mean. So the first one is a voluntary buyback program, which we'll go into in just a moment, because that's the most controversial aspect of all this, is essentially financial compensation for gun owners who now have firearms that are illegal. There's also money in here for more enforcement by police against uh, smuggling and trafficking. Tougher sentences if you are caught smuggling or trafficking guns or ammunition into Canada or within the country. Um, there's also change to red flag laws. Those are the laws there. You can report somebody because you believe that they have a gun and they are a danger to themselves or to someone else. It expands it so it's not just the RCMP and doctors who can make phone calls now. It'll be anybody uh, who can actually take them to court. Anyone right now can call the police and report this, but you'll actually be able to challenge somebody in court through this, which is uh, sort of a very interesting and uh, unexpected aspect. Uh, and then, of course, the last one is the municipal... Handgun ban. Very interesting because handguns are not among the guns that are being banned under uh, what the Liberals announced nine months ago. It's only long guns, semi automatics that they're talking about. But handguns are actually the number one gun used in gun homicides in Canada. Yet the federal government is leaving it up to the municipalities to ban this and they have to do it in coordination with the provinces. So, well, that would wipe handguns out theoretically on the legal level in some cities. Some mayors aren't too happy with that because they think. Think that gun bans should be the responsibility of the federal government
2: hmm, okay and what has the reaction been like like what does the opposition have to say about all this
7: so the Bloc Quebecois uh, was expected to suspect this. Uh, pardon me, to support this legislation, but they're now saying they won't because of the voluntary buyback. Uh, and this is something we are also hearing from gun control advocates. I spoke to one yesterday who said she feels betrayed by the government. She thinks that the prime minister has broken his promise because they had promised they were going to buy the guns back. And the problem under this, uh, the advocates say, and and the Bloc Quebecois says, is the guns are still out there. You don't have to turn them in, and if you don't have to turn them. In they're not really off the streets. Sure, they're not legal, but they're still out there. They could still be stolen. They could still be used, just not legally. But it's not like the barrel has been welded shut. So they're saying that this really doesn't do what it's designed to do in places like Australia and New Zealand, where you had to sell the gun back. Uh, those on the other side, uh, the professional sports shooters and hunters, are saying that the wrong people are being targeted. That the guns that are being targeted have the same capability as other guns that are still legal, uh, and that what the government should be Focusing on is the trafficking of guns coming into Canada and things like handguns. Um, and among all of this, you know, we really don't have many details about that buyback program. We don't know when it's going to start, how much it's going to cost. Uh, yesterday, the federal government said maybe 300 to 400 million. Um, those who work in the firearms industry say that can't possibly include all the stores that have firearms. That you you're probably looking at more like three or four billion. Um, we don't know how much they're going to pay per individual firearm, and beyond that. Yeah, the public safety minister said yesterday they don't even know where these guns are there's somewhere between 100 and 200,000 of them in Canada, but they don't know who owns them or where those guns are located. So that's going to create some interesting challenges for enforcement.
2: So that sounds like there's so much so much more work to do on this then. So with the gun buyback program, if it's voluntary, I guess it sounds like from what you're saying, uh, members of the opposition are saying, well, then kind of what's the point?
7: Yeah, and that's sort of the big criticism. So this is a platform promise that the Liberals are following through uh, with, but Mm -hmm. in a way that has essentially made everybody angry on both sides of the spectrum. It may not even pass before the next election, because keep in mind, it's going to have to be debated. Uh, All three major opposition parties are probably going to push for certain changes to this legislation. Uh, It's politically sensitive for the Liberals, but it allows them to say they introduced it, but they also haven't seized anyone's guns going into an election. Uh, And of course, we don't know when That election will be, but most people think that it's going to be sometime this year. So if it sounds a little bit platformy to you, I wouldn't be too surprised by that. Interesting. All right, Mercedes, thank
2: you. Thanks for having me. It's Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Platformy. I like that. That's pretty much what we're hearing here uh, because so many details are still missing from this gun buyback program that was announced yesterday. So our own Jill Bennett had the opportunity to speak with Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart about his plans to ban handguns in Vancouver. Have a listen.
1: Handguns have no place in cities and that I can say is a blanket statement. Um, In fact my family has a very long history. My grandfather was a gunsmith. I'm a you know I I have a a permit for both restricted and unrestricted firearms and so I I know a lot of the uh, community and I think all of us would agree that handguns have no place in cities. Uh, I live in the
0: city. I own a handgun. I don't shoot it in the city, obviously. I take it to uh-huh. the gun range. Why can't well, Taking that gun away from me, how does that solve crime?
1: I see. So it's a personal issue for you, and I understand that. But I would think that you could leave it at your uh, the facility where you discharge it. And we could, you know, if somebody breaks into your house and steals your gun, there's another gun on the street. So I, I think we need to use every tool we can To uh, to reduce crime in our city, if you look at the uh, recent um, gang shootings, a lot of those are committed with uh, with handguns and and also the act, as I understand it, uh, has a lot tougher uh, crackdown on those who are trafficking illegal guns. So it looks like there's a bunch of tools here. And I support it because I don't think we should have guns on our streets.
2: That's Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum has also weighed in on that, also is, would like to pursue a similar handgun ban for the city of Surrey. So it does sound like municipalities are going to be quicker to jump on this announcement uh, that we heard from the federal government than the federal government is in terms of the gun buyback program. Uh, and maybe that's that gives the municipalities the room that they wanted, and they'll be happy with that. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.
4: Now that we're back up to peak market values and multiple offers prevalent again, you could see that return to the market from sellers that had maybe put the um, notion of selling their property on the back burner in the last year.
2: That's Idle Insights lead analyst, Dane Idle talking real estate with us earlier this morning. It's kind of launched us into this discussion. I'm getting great feedback from you as well about the stories and that you're seeing and hearing and experiencing firsthand with the craziness of the market. Keep it coming. Call our buzz line. Drop me an email. But this record low supply of housing, and we're talking right across the country, and the increase in prices is putting home ownership even further out of reach for the average person in the Lower Mainland. So, Joining us now to talk about how this current market is impacting prospective homebuyers is UBC professor and founder of Generation Squeeze, Paul Kershaw. Hi, Paul.
5: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
2: Well, here we are back again talking about this same problem. And it seems now like there's like, how do we get out of this?
5: Well, at first we'll acknowledge the scope of the problem, and I think that you know another study came out showing it takes so much more time to save that down payment. I'll just remind you the numbers that we've been documenting over the last decade. You know, About four decades ago or so, when I was born in this region, it took five years of full time work for a typical young person to save a 20% down payment on an average priced home. If you flash forward today across Canada, it's 14 years, in Kelowna it's 16, in Victoria it's 18, and in Metro Vancouver it is 28 years of full-time work to try and cobble together that 20% down payment. That is a massive deterioration in the way that people's hard work pays off in this region, and we need to start acknowledging that. And I think we need to do one more thing. I think we have to say that if a pandemic-induced recession does not deflate home prices then we can no longer ignore the probability that our housing system is actually structured, even if unintentionally, to grow housing values out of reach for local earnings. And it's time for all levels of the government to acknowledge that and to adapt our policy to reverse the trend.
2: Right. But is there a government policy that can deal with the fact that a lot of this is societal? This is people making a personal decision to either stay in their house and not downsize or move farther out and they need some space. Like, how does government policy impact that?
5: I think there's Three kinds of government policy that are really influencing our um, our rising home prices that are leaving behind local earnings. One sort of monetary policy issue, a second is tax policy issue, and a third is zoning. I don't say that in any particular order. All three of those things really matter. I and mean, right now, we know that in the recession, we've had you know even historically lower interest rates than ever before, and governments are counting on that because they've been carrying large deficits before the pandemic, and now they have incredibly large deficits during the pandemic. But we have to acknowledge those are also now fueling ongoing ability for people to bid more and more on housing, and that's just escalating these prices. Zoning is a big issue. We know that in Vancouver, for instance, about one-third of people, um, one-third of Vancouverites reside in about three-quarters of the land, squeezing everybody else into that last remaining quarter. It is not an efficient use of our land, and we need to figure out how do we add more density, including rental and co-op housing, into places that are currently low density. And then there is tax policy. I mean, um, right now, we, we shelter house, our principal residences from taxation, like we shelter no other asset, And that inclines people to think about, hey, I can get a good investment return via housing. Many of us go into housing because we want a home, but then this tax policy starts to incentivize us to think about it a good investment strategy. Right. And I don't think we need to change tax policy for everybody, but now I'm in a home that's well over a million dollars. You know, last year, BC assessment told me my home went up by hundreds of thousands of dollars while I slept and while I cooked and watched TV. That's way more than I earned as a hardworking prof. And there's got to be ways that we could tap into that kind of windfall.
2: Right. I wonder about that, right? Because you, how do you convince empty nesters who don't want to sell anymore? Like, you know, we were talking about that. Like a couple of years ago, we thought that eventually we'd sell the house and downsize. And now we're thinking, now we're just going to stay here. Well, what policy could possibly convince, you know, people like us that, no, no, you should sell and move on?
5: Yeah, I don't think we necessarily need to convince people to sell at this stage. Um, I think if we can rechange our zoning, we can add uh, density in other kinds of ways. Um, but I do think that we want to say to those of us who have gained major wet wealth windfalls, you know, not someone who's in that, you know, few hundred thousand dollar home or, you know, even below a million dollars. But you know, once you start getting above a million dollars and whatnot, people like me have been winning, winning in this region uh, because of the escalation in home prices. And If we were to start to say, hey, how might we ask you to contribute a little bit more? That would do two things. We actually build up a pool of money we could invest into affordable rental and co-op housing. And it would simultaneously provide another policy signal to try and dampen down to best investment in housing as your primary wealth accumulation strategy.
2: That's a huge psychological shift you're talking about, though, right? Because this is a couple generations of people now in Metro Vancouver who have grown up thinking, I got to get on the real estate ladder.
5: It totally is, but it's exactly that logic, which is driving our home prices to leave earnings behind. Like, if we want housing in Metro Vancouver to be affordable, one of two things needs to happen. Either we need to see earnings more than triple which is very unlikely to happen, and or we need to see home prices drop by around 700000 Again, very unlikely. So we've baked in unaffordability for some time forward. But we need to say no more. We can't talk about the health, the health of the housing system as it being healthy when home prices are rising. We need a shift in our hearts and our heads say, oh my gosh, the next time someone reports that home prices have gone up, that has to be them not recovering. That has to be them getting sick and you know, understand that we have a pandemic that we're fighting, but once the pandemic's over, we're going to return to remembering that fighting these, this pandemic of housing prices has been something we've been trying to do for some time, and it is just crushing people's social determinants of health, their ability to actually have their hard work pay off, and their ability to actually try and make ends meet and have enough space to raise their kids and send them out onto the the yard to play or the ground to go play, et cetera, Mm. as opposed to throwing them on a balcony.
2: All those issues. Paul, thank you so much for your time.
5: You're welcome. Have a great day.
2: Well, it might be the middle of winter. We may have some questionable rainy days out there, but nothing, it seems like, has stopped people in Metro Vancouver from getting outside in record numbers. So just out this morning, Metro Vancouver is actually announcing that regional parks had 1.2 million visits in the month of January. For comparison, that is double the number for the same period in 2020. So joining us to talk about where people are going, what they're enjoying, is the Anmore Mayor and Chair of the Regional Parks Committee at Metro Vancouver, John McEwen. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. These are some pretty impressive numbers.
8: They're very impressive uh, numbers that we've never seen, and as, as you said earlier, uh, regarding the weather, it's uh, it's shocking. Uh, but I think that people, you know, during this time of COVID, have sort of reset their priorities and realizing the the health benefits uh, of getting out into nature.
2: Do you think this puts uh, or does it show evidence of any kind of a strain on the system with that many people getting out to enjoy the parks?
8: It does in some areas. Um, you know, we, we know that Deep Cove has a, has a traffic issue. We, uh, Belcarra, Boundary Bay, and we're working really hard and diligently trying to, trying to alleviate some of that. But what worries us and, and the committee is, in general is how, if these numbers are doubling now, how are they going to be come the summer months?
2: So are those the areas that are kind of the busiest
8: yeah, and Pacific Spirit Park is, but it's Pacific Spirit Park is big enough that it can sort of uh, handle that sort of volume currently, but Boundary Bay is, is a really tight area to get in and out of, so we're working with the mayor of uh, Delta, George Harvey, in regards to how to, to help facilitate that. We're going to be instituting a bit of a uh, reserve parking for a portion of their parking lot, as well as we've got uh, uh, using working with the city of uh, Delta in regards to using some of their facilities and parking to be able to shuttle piece, people in. And back in and out.
2: Right. It's that one road going in, one road coming out. Yeah. Same but as Deep it's similar, Coast.
8: similar to Belcarra as well. Belcarra has seen unprecedented concerns here with traffic as well. But it's, you know, it really, the COVID, I, I believe, has really focused people and, and sort of reset them as to what, you know, getting out of the, the day-to-day grind and realizing how important it is to get out. And with regional parks, the size of them, it's really put a focus on them because, at the advent of uh, of COVID, we, you know, a lot of the small municipal parks weren't big enough to be able to handle the social distancing. So, regional parks, which we remained open at Metro Vancouver, were really uh, where everybody went to.
2: Now, are there any concerns about the strain in terms of what people are bringing? Like, is there garbage? Like, has that been an issue?
8: It, you know, we we've handled people have been really really well. We we try and and really promote the fact to make sure that you're using parks in your own area. We don't want people sort of traveling across the region, you know. Um, uh, And, you know, we we have signs everywhere, some really innovative signs regarding how, you know, uh, with a size of a a picture of a cougar in regards to how how far apart people need to do, maintain social distancing. Um, And we're also suggesting to a lot of people to pack it in, pack it out, don't leave items behind in the park, so...
2: So people are paying attention to all that.
8: Yeah, they, they really are. The, the biggest challenge is just handling the numbers. And, and, you know, these numbers that came out today for January are unprecedented. And I know where my municipality in the village of Anmore, we, we have a, a Bunsen Lake, which is a hydro facility, um, not a regional park. And I've, been, I've received two notices in the month of January saying that capacity is, has been reached at uh, midday. And, you know, there's 600, over 600 parking stalls there. And it's just simply unheard of.
2: That is unheard of. Now, Mary McCune, yeah. do you think this also tells us perhaps do we need more Metro Vancouver parks?
8: Definitely. Um, I think that what what the uh, Metro Vancouver Board really identified a couple of years ago when we added more money to the the land acquisition budget for regional parks is that there's a lot of areas in our region where it, unprecedented growth is happening, like the city of Vancouver. Um, city of North Vancouver and, and these concentrated areas that we're adding all these more residents and we're not adding any more green space for them to be able to to get out into parks. And so we're having to, to sort of look at areas outside of the Lower Mainland where we can still buy land um, and and prevent further, further growth in that land and, and allow these big parks. So right now we're focusing on an area in the northeast sector around cod wetlands, which is in north pit, kind of near the pit lake in northern pit, pit meadows. And hopefully at some point we'll be able to comprise a park there that'll, you know, rival maybe two of the size of Stanley parks.
2: Well, that would be nice. Okay. So what advice do you have then for people who are heading out to some of these parks?
8: To go, uh, to make sure you go online, to make sure we're, we're going to be really instituting uh, people to promote people about capacity issues. So, you know, as I said earlier, pack it in, pack it out, try and stay in your local parks, and try and use public transit. Uh, we've been working extensively with TransLink in regards to getting more buses and that uh, to be able to bring people in and out so that we don't have the huge issue with cars and parking.
2: Is this, uh, so do you see the new initiatives in terms of parking starting soon?
8: Yeah, we, this would be the first year that we're going to be instituting uh, a form of reservation and pay parking in uh, in Belcarra and uh, um uh, sorry, Bur- uh, Burns um, Boundary Bay.
2: Okay, so people should watch out for that then.
8: Yeah, yeah, it'll be coming forward and uh, we've, we've started, this is going to be a pilot project this year and uh, we'll see how it goes to be able to allow some people to reserve and, and other peoples just to, um, you know, and we're not really wanting to use it as a, power, uh, a, gen- a financial generator as much as we want it just to be able to control the population and, and encourage people to use public transit
2: All Right. well thank you so much for your time on that this morning
8: you're welcome thank you
2: that's john mccune who's the chair of the regional parks committee at metro vancouver also the mayor of Anmore. Uh, so they've got some new numbers out this morning that just blasted through any previous you know usage records that they had for metro vancouver parks so their regional parks had 1.2 million visits in the month of january double the number for the same period in 2020. If you've gone to one of them, then you know how busy it is. Some areas will be instituting a different parking system to help limit some of that congestion that you see there. So watch out for that.